we invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. This is after a couple week um, diversion or uh, journey elsewhere, we uh, return to our study on the Sermon on the Mount. We um, have labeled this series a Kingdom Manifesto. As I've said repeatedly, it's because one scholar I think uh, astutely observed is that this is the closest, this sermon is the closest thing to a manifesto that Jesus Christ ever uttered. This passage from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7 is his outline, his expression of what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, to be followers of Christ, and how we live in this world at the same time as those who belong to God the Father. As we've looked at this passage, uh, these passages, we've recognized the character that uh, God has called us to and promised that one day those who belong to him will have, and the way that we are to live uh, just in, in, in very specific but in, in general terms. And this morning we could turn to how we are to live in relationships, in the relationships that we have in this life. And the reason that that's important for us is to consider this morning is it's probably, there's probably nothing in this life where it affects us more than the relationships that we have with, in this world. Now, as one uh, writer, a guy named Steve Ciccone, um, in his book Relational Wisdom, has stated is that there is a direct correlation between our relationships and the quality of life that we live here. And we understand that. Uh, most of us have probably experienced that to some degree or another. Because some of us have experienced great highs and we've had almost everything, the whole world in a sense, that everything that we could possibly desire and yet even with all of those things, if we have relationships that are close to us, that are strained or in conflict, we realize that everything that we have, everything we've accomplished really doesn't mean a whole lot. We, we don't feel on top of the world. Others of us or at other times that we've are dealing with serious challenges and struggles, and yet those who are closest to us, we feel the love of our spouse or our children and the affirmation from our parents. And regardless of what we may be facing, no matter how hard it may be, or even the likelihood of, of failure, we recognize that we have all we need. We have a peace and there's a contentment. Because I think Sikoni is right, that there is a direct correlation between the relationships that we have and the quality of our lives. And then also in that book, he, he makes this observation, however, that we also might recognize. Sikoni says, unfortunately, many of us give less than optimal effort, focus, and intentionality to how we spend, invest, and give in our relationships. In other words, we know that relationships are important, either implicitly or we've, or just, uh, we've experienced it. But we don't give ourselves, or we don't understand what it is, is necessary for us to live with good and strong and growing relationships. And so we don't invest ourselves, we don't give uh, to those relationships. And then he asks this question, one that I, I hope will resonate with you and, and particularly that we will touch on this morning. He asks, wouldn't, wouldn't life be different and better if people avoided spending years in the same relationally dysfunctional cycles? Think about that for a moment relationships that you might have that are strained or people that you know and realize that the same patterns seem to exist, how would life be better if we lived with ever-increasing harmonious relationships? 
The passage we're going to look at this morning from Matthew 7, verses 1 through 12, as Jesus is kind of winding up the Sermon on the Mount, as one Bible scholar calls it, his summary, uh, like an attorney kind of begins to summarize and, and to apply. Jesus gives us some very practical instructions about relationships. And this really only makes sense because Jesus is all about relationships. Jesus is the one who has created us and designed us for community. Jesus is the one who has commanded us to love one another and our neighbors and even our enemies. And he's the one who has commissioned us to have an impact in this world as the salt and light in this world. And he's the one who even prays for us, as John records in Matthew 7, or excuse me, in John 17, that uh, Jesus is praying for the unity of those who are his people. And so we see over and again throughout all of Jesus' life just how important relationships are. And in this text that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus gives us four essential illustrations. There's four categories that we're going to be looking at here. Three of dealing with three kinds of relationships and then an overarching uh, instruction for us I- regarding all of the relationships uh, that we have, all the spheres of relationships that we might find ourselves in. And so we'll turn t- now to Matthew 7, 1 through 12. If you're not there yet, I'm going to pray for us, and you can continue to, to turn and-, and find that. God, again, as I say, God will hear us even if our pages are turning. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord that he might speak to us. Our Father, we do come with thanksgiving that you have chosen to not leave us guessing and wondering. But the questions that we have and need to be resolved, you have recorded for us in your word, the word that you have spoken and the word in which Christ has come to embody. We pray now that even as we've come to offer you worship, which we do through the the prayers and and the praises the declarations of our faith. We would realize we also offer you worship now as we give our minds, our ears, and our hearts to this word that you have recorded for us, where you have told us that your voice continues to speak by your spirit. You speak in power through your word, and that your word never comes back empty. Lord, we do pray that your word would be at work in us today, not only guiding us in how we should live, but turning our attention to Christ, reminding us of who we are in him, and therefore empowering us to be what we desire to be, and maybe even more than we desire to be, to be what you desire for us to be. I pray that you would be at work, that we might find the joy of being in line and being formed by your word. May we not only be informed, but formed, not only hearers, but doers of your word, that we might experience all of your promise. Lord, let us hear your voice, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. Matthew 7, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Judge not that you you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, 
when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets, the word of our Lord. Again, as Jesus gives us these illustrations here and these uh, probably very familiar words, certainly familiar to those who have grown up in church, there's relationship categories that he gives us. And the first relationship that he seems to be addressing here, or that I'm convinced that he's addressing here, is the relationship that we have with one another, the relationship that we have with other believers, both inside this church or within the broad church. Wherever Christ is called, wherever someone belongs to Christ, Jesus is dealing with that issue here. The reason I believe he has that in mind is if you look at what he's teaching here, he gives an instruction, and then he makes an application. And the application of the instruction, three times in that application, he talks about the way that we relate to our brothers. When Jesus talks about our brothers in the Scriptures, he's talking about those who all share the same Father, which we have, who is God, and happen to have because we have trusted in Jesus Christ. And so while the unit principle that Jesus is teaching is universal, Jesus has in mind here he's treat, touching to those who are his followers in the way that we relate to other of his followers uh, in, the, in the church, both the local church and, and in the broader church. Now, it's important that we also understand that Jesus has designed the church to be a, a network of mutually beneficial relationships. In other words, we relate to one another, we encourage one another, we build one another up. The vision is, in, is expressed by Paul in Ephesians that we would all grow in the unity of the faith and to full maturity in Christ and that the purpose is that we serve one another, encourage one another until we all reach to that full maturity. That's the vision that Jesus has for his church. And the way that he's designed it is that we live our lives together in that kind of relationship where we can speak and we can encourage and we can instruct until we all not only reach full maturity as a bunch of individuals, but the, the Greek word is edification, the, uh, the, and that simply is the putting together. It's what you see happening in construction. When somebody is building an edifice, they're putting together different parts until it all becomes one big building. We are being built into being a temple for God. We are being a church and made, all of us, and that's the, that's the object, and to do that, we have to live together. Now, the problem is, is that most of you have probably experienced at one time or another, if you've been in the church for more than a week, and if you haven't been, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Sometimes we rub one another the wrong way. We get on one another's nerves. Our weaknesses annoy one another. We disappoint one another. Our sins offend one another. And there's nobody that's been in the church more than a week that can say that isn't true. It's just the reality. 
even if it's not an issue of sin, living in proximity, living in community, seems to create tension. And consequently, many of the people, particularly in, in our day, assume that there must be something wrong with the church or that church, and they keep looking for the church where people will not annoy them. They won't find it. It's the way that Jesus has designed it. That we are to live together, to build one another up, even if we annoy one another. And it's not just a consequence of living together, but it's designed for a, a proactive reason as well. Because just a sandpaper working on a rough table, rough piece of wood, smooths it out. So do we, when we grate against one another, begin to smooth out the rough spots in our lives and in our faith. And just as certain tools working and carving and chiseling and chipping away at the wood creates beautiful pieces of furniture and beautiful pieces of art, so do our lives what they knock against one another and chip away, even if it's unintentional. By living in community, God has designed that that rubbing actually shapes us, that we become more and more like Christ. Living together in a community of broken and messed up and weak and failed and sinful people is part of God's brilliant design to shape us and to enable us to grow spiritually. And along with that, as we do that, we are also demonstrating to a world that is watching or seeing and is longing for something where they can belong, something that is good. We are a demonstration to the world of what it means to live in reconciliation as we demonstrate the reconciliation that Jesus Christ has given for us. We live with one another. We swallow one another's debts simply because Christ has swallowed ours. And when we do that, we are a living testimony, a declaration to anybody who is watching that this is what God has done for those that he loves for his own people. And so Jesus, as he understands, he's talking to people who have lived in community. He's talking to people who have experienced the disappointment within their community, probably even within their own little band. And he's explaining to them how the kingdom should work, how those who are followers of Christ should live together, how we can live together in a way that actually enables us to sharpen one another, build one another, and declare uh, the, uh, about the Christ recon reconciliation that takes place in Christ. Now, it's important as we see his instructions here, he begins with a very simple phrase. He kind of just jumps right into it. And he says in verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. Seems simple enough. Some Bible commentators or cultural commentators have suggested that this passage has now replaced John 3.16 as the most familiar verse in American culture. It certainly seems to be the most quoted, and I would say it's probably the most misapplied passage in all of Scripture. The whole idea, as it's widely stated, don't judge anybody, otherwise you'll be judged. That is sort of what Jesus is saying, but it's, it seems to mean that we should just close our eyes and become blind to what's going on around us and in the lives of other people. And it certainly can't be the case, because the next thing he says, we'll look at here in a moment, is that we ought to be able to discern between that which is holy and that which is unholy. So we need to be able to discern. Jesus is not saying that we become unaware and that we just live and let live and have no standards whatsoever. He is giving the warning that seems to be the motive for people is Jesus is saying, don't judge, otherwise you'll be judged. Now, oftentimes we tend to think that Jesus is talking about the judgment that comes from God, and I don't think that that's what's in view here. He's just talking about the reciprocal relationships that we have 
in this world and in this life. And Jesus, when he's saying, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged with the measure you use. It will be measured against you. And Jesus is just describing the reality that we have experienced, the reality that we have witnessed, and the reality that's just part of life in this world is that if we tend to be very critical people, and if we open our eyes and then immediately open our mouth, pointing out the faults and the flaws of others, it doesn't take very long before they turn and return the favor to us as well. Jesus is saying, here's the instruction. A simple instruction for us is, don't judge because the measure by which you judge, that's going to be the measure that comes to you. One Bible scholar named Frederick Dale Bruner has identified the problem. Listen to how he describes it. Uh, we sometimes think that we have a responsibility to disperse disesteem in the measure we feel people deserve it. And we think that those disbursements contribute to social equilibriums. For with signs of disapproval, we think the wayward are chastised exactly what Jesus is, is, is getting at here. He's saying that there's this tendency, there's a problem, apparently, among God's people and people who are not God's people. That when we see something that disappoints us, when we see something that we disagree with, when we see something that is wrong, we become snarky and we dispense of our disapproval, or as Bruner says, our disesteem. And we convince ourselves that we do that for the other person's benefit. See, we feel they need it. And so we disperse our disesteem. We let them know that we think they're wrong, they're worthless, they're ugly, whatever it may be that we feel like they need to be corrected on. And we think that somehow by our disesteem, they're going to feel the weight of our disapproval, and then they will immediately change. I mean, we only do it out of the kindness of our heart, right? That's the only reason we complain and point fingers at the people who are around us. It's for their good. And yet, in this passage, Jesus is telling us to beware of our own calculus. Because as most of us have probably noticed at one place or another, one relationship setting or another, one church or another, is that there are sometimes unintended effects with such snarky attempts of encouraging people to grow in holiness. And Jesus warns about it because people then return the favor. I don't think I'm breaking ground to say most people don't like to receive criticism. Very few people receive criticism, especially when it's unexpected, and say, oh, thank you. You've made my day. We're not thankful about criticism. We don't like to experience chastisement, even if we know that it is beneficial. And if we encounter somebody whose frequent relationship to us is pointing out our flaws and our weakness, rather than becoming softened, we tend to be hardened. We don't listen to what they say. We don't hear it. In fact, we begin to relate to them in kind, and we do reciprocate because we don't want to feel judged. We want them to feel the judgment of their judgment. And so exactly what Jesus describes here is what takes place. If 
by the measure by which we judge and we dish out, it comes. You know, what goes around comes around is the simple way of saying what Jesus is telling us here. This is just the reality. It's the unintended consequences of living in relationships that are critical, finger-pointing, judgmental, disesteem, condemning. Think about it for just a moment. What an absolutely awful environment to live in. Some of you don't have to imagine you've lived in it, whether in your families or other groups that you've been part of or churches that you've been part of, where people just are constantly critical in conflict with one another. And it's, it's, it's horrible. What Jesus prescribes here is nothing short of the instruction that what we need is forgiveness. What we need is humility in the way that we relate to one another about it. Jesus is not saying that we don't communicate, that we don't have responsibility for one another. He's pointing out that the way we go about it is entirely wrong oftentimes. And that's why he says, look, just don't be hypocrites about it. Don't go around looking for the faults in other people as if that's going to produce good results. What he tells us is first examine your own heart. First examine your own life. And that is an important principle for us to recognize in this instruction. It is the first principle in the way that we live in relationship to one another is that we are aware and we are looking at our own hearts and our own lives. And in order to do that, that requires a measure of humility, doesn't it? Because nobody likes to be told about their failures, their flaws, their faults, and their sin. And most of us are quite adept at ignoring those things in ourselves as well. But Jesus' instruction is that we need to be aware of our own hearts, of our own lives. He's saying the first thing that we need to be aware of is what's going on in our own heart. Paul picks that same theme up in Galatians chapter 6, understanding the instruction of Christ and the wisdom as he's instructing the Galatian church in the way that they ought to live with one another. Paul makes uh, this, gives them this instruction. If anyone sees a brother who is in sin, go to him gently, but watch yourself, lest you too be tempted to sin. You hear what Paul is saying there. He's not suggesting that we don't have a mutual accountability and responsibility to one another because that's antithetical to the purpose of Christ and his church to build one another up. If we just ignore what's going on in one another's lives, we don't become closer and we don't grow. Paul says if you see somebody who is in sin, we have that responsibility, but be gentle when you go, which is exactly the opposite of the picture that Jesus is describing here. But also be aware of yourself. Be careful about your own heart that you might be tempted as well. And Paul's temptation that he's concerned about there is not that we might fall into the same sin as that other person. That may be the problem. But far more often it is the issue of thinking that we are better, we are superior, we become critical, we become annoyed, that we enter into, we be drawn into a whole other type of sin because we're going with critical spirits toward other people. And so Paul is saying exactly what Jesus is saying, is that we need to be aware of our own hearts to prepare ourselves. That's the first thing that we need to do. Years later, Jonathan Edwards, he was actually a, still a teenager, a college student, uh, considered by many to be not only the greatest uh, philosopher, but also theologian ever born on North American soils. Jonathan Edwards was a deep thinker. And rather than simply pointing at other people, as some of you who were forced, perhaps almost at gunpoint, to read a sermon during your high school English class that he had preached, 
Jonathan Edwards espoused the gospel to himself on a regular basis. One of the things he did as a teenager was to write a series of resolutions as things had dawned on him and occurred to him. He would write the resolutions for his own life. And so he would be preaching at himself. And one of the ones that he made as a foundation for his life was this. Resolved, on occasion of anyone sinning against me, to use it as an opportunity to repent. See, Edwards resolved that his own sin, which sometimes he was not aware of, was a far greater offense to God, who is perfect and holy, than whatever anybody might do to him. And so somebody might have wronged him, and somebody might have sinned against him. He wasn't suggesting what somebody had done to him isn't necessarily wrong or sinful. But his first practice, what he determined that he was going to do, was to use every occasion where he felt offended to now turn his attention to God, who was perfect and holy, look at his own life and realize there's sin in here. And even though what they did is offensive to me and is wrong, I am a sinner who is receiving ill treatment from another person. But God, who is perfect and holy, is receiving disrespect from me, either by my overt sin or by my lack of attention to God or lack of caring about what God has done and who God is. And so Edwards would turn at every opportunity where he felt offended, and his first response, at least as a resolution, was to use somebody else's sin as an opportunity to repent. That's as if if Camper comes in on Tuesday morning and annoys me. It's just illustration purposes. This is not actual history. That rather than reciprocating, annoying him back, which is hard to imagine that ever happens, Whatever offense he directs my way, it leads me now to say, God, forgive me for my sin. You see, when we rub one another along the way, whether it is by the example of what Edwards has resolved to do or simply by preparing ourselves, we actually have an opportunity to grow spiritually. The person who is offending, the person who is rubbing you the wrong way, actually is a tool to make you more aware of your need of grace. But when you turn to God, aware of your need, then you become a recipient of more grace. People who annoy you, people who sin against you, people who offend you most in the church, they are God's gift to you. But We also need to realize that it doesn't just stop there because in our culture, we do tend to lack what Jesus has termed in, in his church But what we see here in verse 5, he says, look, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we don't just stop with the idea that our sin is greater before God than somebody else has sinned against us, which is our spiritual growth. But the humility that it takes to recognize our sin also cultivates a humility And with that humility, we also then gain spiritual ability to speak into other people's lives. We are tempered. We are less judgmental. We are seeing more as God sees. And now, the response that we give to the person who is need, we are able to say and to speak in a way that is gentle and loving in the way of Christ. This is the way that we're supposed to relate to one another. This is the way that Christ has called us to live in relation to one another. It's will be an awareness personally of the gospel and then speaking the truth and love to one another so that we can all encourage one another to be built up in God's grace and the unity of the faith 
so that we can reach maturity of the gospel, maturity in Christ. And this is sadly lacking in our churches because we either are judgmental or we are afraid of being judgmental. We don't speak truth and love to one another. But imagine what it would be like if we did. If being humbled by the gospel, repentant before God, and then dealing with one another out of love, we would speak to build one another up. This is not just a pious expression, but this is what we all long for. And Jesus is saying this is the way that we are to live in relationship with one another. And Jesus moves on, not only from the way that we live in relationship with one another, in relationship with others in the body of Christ, but he also speaks about our relationship with our neighbors. We see that in verse 6. I would say he's addressing here the relationship that we have with our neighbors or with the unbelieving world, people who are, are different. And Jesus uses a, a very provocative illustration or, or, or parable of dogs and pigs here uh, to explain how it is that we are, are, are to live in relationship to the people who differ from us and yet are still in our proximity. Now, like many of you, this past week I watched the developments at the University of Missouri and at Yale and Ithaca College with somewhat of a, a bemused fascination. If you are not a news junkie and somehow are able to avoid hearing about it, the students on those campuses are pro protesting their uh, perceived injustices. Some of what they're protesting, the injustices are legit. Some of them seem to be a little bit less so. And they're protesting, and they're having some effect, certainly at the University of Missouri, because the protests have led to the ouster of both the president of the university and the chancellor. At Yale University, they're trying to oust two tenured professors because they didn't, the students didn't like the openness of the professors in telling them that in college you should be grown up and be able to handle the fact that some people see things differently than you. That was apparently an offensive statement, and now the tenured professors need to go, according to these students. And I will have to confess that as I was watching this during the week and watching the developments, and as uh, more and more, I was developing somewhat of a just shocked, stunned, even tempted to mock. And particularly, that was happened when I heard the interview that was given by the vice president of the student government at the University of Missouri speaking with MSNBC, when she said that they were, she was tired of hearing about all this First Amendment right of free speech because people's free speech was not only hurting their feelings, it was causing them emotional pain and that free speech should be curtailed according to what people wanted to hear. And it was, make no, no bones about it, her, her statement was that if people state something that disagrees with what I believe, that hurts me somehow, and so we need to not allow them to have a place where they can speak this. In a subsequent uh, study or article I read had talked about the Pew Research has come to the conclusion that uh, their research is, is, is indicating that 51% of college students in school today believe that hearing, simply hearing an, a position contrary to the one you hold is emotionally damaging. I hear the laughing, and I, I kind of was doing that too. I mean, I, my, everything within me wanted to just mock what was going on. And then it dawned on me. I know a lot of Christians that do the exact same thing for the exact same reasons. 
See, many of us have become very uncomfortable in the fact that we are now living in a culture that has moved out of Christendom where, while it wasn't Christian, nevertheless, the rights and the wrongs were based on the Judeo-Christian values. And wherever you stood in relation to them, everybody had the same standard. And we knew that's how you measured right and wrong. And that culture has now passed. As difficult as it is to understand is that is not the prevailing worldview of the culture that we live in anymore. It is a large minority, but it is not the majority view anymore. And so many Christians and so many other conservatives that are frustrated with that, they want to hide themselves off. They create the safe spaces, and they want the churches to be turned into safe spaces where we can only be around other people who are going to say the things that we want to hear, agree with us, whether it is in terms of doctrine and who God is and the way of salvation and the values, or whether it spreads out into other political views. But we want to just kind of get away. And from the safety of our safe space, we may lob our demands to the culture that they need to either shape up, or we lob our evangelical tracts so that they were not neglecting of reaching them and telling them that there is a Jesus or they're going to hell. And it's somewhat of a caricature, but it's a caricature that I think most of you probably recognize because it is all too true of too much of the Christian culture. And so when I realized that what I was about to mock was also true of me and my clan, my type, I began to think a little bit more soberly, although with some sorrow. I began to ask, why is it that we're like that? Why are the students like that? And I can't realize it's an understandable thing, because look at the other side. Who likes living in a culture where you're in constant conflict and bickering about different ideas? Of course we don't want to be involved in that, and we want to withdraw. We want people to agree with us. But that's not the world. It's not the world we live in. And I realized the wisdom of another writer who was dealing with an entirely different issue in an article that I, I read this week, when he nailed it for what we need to understand, when he says this, as Christians, we should expect that there are going to be a lot of ideas that run counter to our own. Christianity is countercultural in its DNA. And if you think about what he's saying, we need to realize, and maybe we even need to admit to ourselves, maybe this is the first time you'll hear it, but some of what we believe is weird. The fundamental reason we are all gathered here this morning and feel that we can approach the God who created all things is because we believe a man who was born 2,000 some years ago, who lived a life of a peasant, worked with his hands, did nothing of great significance in the culture, began to preach for a few years, alienated a few people, gathered a few other followers, so they killed him. And then he rose again from the dead and then empowered people to follow him. Do you know how nuts that is? Now please hear, nuts doesn't mean wrong. Because God of the universe who has created all things, this is the way that he has ordained that we would live our lives. But this is the reality that we understand only because God has opened our eyes. But it doesn't take somebody, somebody's not nuts when they say, dead people don't rise. But this is the foundation of our faith. And if the foundation of our faith is weird, then certainly our values would seem to be weird as well. So we don't need to be shocked that people think differently than us. We need to realize that God has created this way because in the brokenness of our world, people have come up with all sorts of ideas and we have exchanged the truth for our own ideas, palatable lies. Jesus is instructing us here in this passage, provocative as it is, to say, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. 
lest they trample them underfoot and turn them to attack. Now, first thing I need to say here is Jesus is not calling people names. One Bible scholar says, and is just reminded me as I was studying this week, is these were very common kind of nicknames. Not nice nicknames, but common nicknames in ancient Judaism for people who were unclean, kind of pigs, and people, and we, and people who were wild, like a wild pack of dogs, and that's why they, they were there. And so, in other words, their lifestyle was not meeting up to the standard of holiness that God has laid out. And so uncleanness, and they lived in a life that was almost by instinct, like animals is the way that John Stott puts it. And he here is speaking in provocative language, but not to offend, because he's speaking to those who were his followers. He's actually using the provocative language that they would understand, words that they would have used, in order to get their attention so that he can correct them. But clearly he's speaking to those who were his followers about people who are not his followers, and so that's where it pertains to us in the way that we are to relate to the world. And the way that we look at this passage is not to say, not only is, one is it's not that he's not only not calling names, nor is it giving us permission to call people names. That's not his point. He's helping us to understand a deeper point, and his point is you don't give to dogs that which is holy, you don't give to pigs uh, the, the, the pearls, and there's a reason that he gives here. Some of the things that we need to, to kind of distill from what he is saying here is this, primarily, we need wisdom and discernment in the way that we communicate and relate to other people, particularly those who differ from us, those who don't share our faith foundations. We need a level of discernment. And it's a reminder to us, something that we should know, and many of us would profess, but somehow we get our religiosity on and we forget it. But not all of the people who don't share our views, who do not share salvation in Christ, are exactly the same. Even the illustration here, he uses different kinds of people. There's some who just, you know, don't measure up, and there's others who, you know, live wild lives. They're not all the same, and we need to recognize and discern, where is this person as we speak to them? And Jesus is saying, you don't just throw out our religiosity, our religious language at them, but be wise as to how we communicate with them. We also need to say in this passage, Jesus is not suggesting that there's a certain type of people who shouldn't receive the gospel. That would go against everything that not only did he teach us elsewhere, but everything that he's using the Sermon on the Mount to prepare a people to do. He's preparing a people who will go be an influence in this world by declaring the praises of Christ so that people can be reconciled to him. And he's not saying, okay, but if anybody's unclean or if they are living by their own instinct, well, then don't talk to them. Who would be left? Who of us would be here? But he's saying, don't treat people who are different than you as if they're all the same and as if they're your enemies. Be wise. And the reason I say that he's saying that is he gives a clause. He doesn't just stop by saying, don't do this. His answer is, because they'll trample it underfoot and turn to attack you. And we're seeing that too often right now, not just because the world doesn't like Christ, but because the way we are attacking the people who don't believe, who don't think like us, how else are they going to respond? They're responding in the same way that we would respond. So we need to be wise when we're talking with our people, with people around us, realizing that your next-door neighbors who are not believers, some of them are close and just say, yeah, I, I, know, I, I know I need to be in church and it would probably be good for me. And someone else, perhaps having been hurt or perhaps coming from a different religious tradition, they might be hostile to the gospel. But we communicate with them in different ways, but with wisdom based on who they are. 
Because if we don't, not only are they going to just take what we're trying to give to them and trample on it, but if we do it in an inappropriate way, undiscerning, uncaring, we're going to receive really what we deserve. We're going to be trampled on. The last relationship we have here, we've looked at the relationship with other believers and the relationship with those who are our neighbors but have a different way of looking at the world. The last relationship that Jesus touches on here, we find in verses 7 through 11, and that's the relationship that we have with God. And essentially what Jesus says here, in the relationship that we have with our Father, we find encouragement. We find assurance. Jesus is describing God here as our Father. And he's talking about ask and seek. And we use this evangelistically, and sometimes we use this passage pertaining just to prayer. But look at it in the context of what he's talking about here. Jesus is talking about the way we relate to one another and then the way we relate to our unbelieving neighbors. That we would like to see, have the hope of the gospel, we would like to live in harmony with, and yet we can't make it happen and we don't even know how it is that we're supposed to talk with one another and talk with our neighbors. Now it's in that context with those questions resonating through people's minds, Jesus says, well, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find, knock and it will be opened to you. In other words, if you have any questions about the way that you ought to relate to other people, whether they're believers or unbelievers, then it's an invitation for us to relate to our Father and ask Him, Lord, give me the wisdom that I need. Give me the discernment that I need. And the promise is, if you go seeking, if you go knocking, if you go asking, God will provide. And Jesus reemphasizes this in the whole nature of the illustration that goes on. For everyone who asks receives, and no one who seeks, and, and, and the one seeks who finds. And then He gives this, the illustration part. You who are fathers, if your son comes and asks for something, who gives him lousy gifts? You not only give what he wants, but you give even more. And so Jesus is talking about the relationship. He's rooting us in the relationship that we have with the Father, which comes through faith in him. And he's saying we have the assurance of God's love for us and the Father. And that when we go and we ask him for the wisdom that we need, he promises to provide the wisdom that we need. And so we are relating to our Father as those who are in need, as he's the one with great wisdom, as the one who will provide for us what we need, the guidance and the direction in order to live and to relate in this world in a way that will not only bring us the joy that we long for, but will advance his kingdom as well. And then the last thing here is verse 12, commonly known as the golden rule, and it does deal with relationships. And I'm going to wrap up with this. Because Jesus says here, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Well, we've already looked at the different relationships and saying, in our relationship with one another, we need humility. Our relationship with our neighbors, we need wisdom. Our relationship with our Father provides assurance. All of our in all of our relationships, we are commanded to be proactive. That's essentially what Jesus is, is saying here. Whatever you do, whatever it is that you wish that others would do for you, do for them. We need to understand this in light of the early people, early believers. There's an ancient uh, Jewish rabbi named Hillel who was revered for his teaching. And his philosophy of life is don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do with you. And then whenever he would say that, he would say, this is the whole of the law. Everything else is just commentary. 
Now, Jesus is taking that understanding, which is really reflective of every, almost every religion in the world, that says, look, if you don't want somebody to do something to you, don't do anything to them. And Jesus turns that and says, hey, if you would want somebody to do something for you, then go do it for them. This is the law, and everything else is just commentary. And think about the illustration that Jesus gives in terms of that most believers, most Christians are familiar with, the parable of the Good Samaritan. See, in Hillel and most world religions, the idea would be this, is, well, I don't think I'd like to get beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road, so I won't beat anybody up and leave them dead for the side of the road. Kind of lacks something there, doesn't it? I mean, that's, I mean, I hope that that works that way. I, I don't want to get beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road. But Jesus says that misses the entire point. The issue is not what you don't do. The issue is do. And the issue is how do you demonstrate love to the people who are around you? We are to be proactive in every relationship in seeking God, seeking one another, and seeking our neighbor and to demonstrating the love. That's what Jesus is commanding us to do. Whatever it is that you would want, that's what you are commanded to do. And the essence of Christianity is not just a be good and don't do harm. It is demonstrate love even to those who are your enemies. And Jesus is commanding us here, and there's no better one to speak because he not only is the, has the authority to instruct us, but he is the perfect model. I mean, just imagine the conversation that most of us would have with anybody else. Somebody comes and saying, look, the way you live your life and all your relationships are just wrong. What are you going to say if Jesus comes? You know, who do you think you are, God? You know? Well, yeah, uh, I am God. It's not even this that that's, he has the authority, but even as we professed in our confession of faith earlier in the worship service, here's how Jesus responds to that issue. Even though he is God, he did not consider the glory of God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing and became a servant, taking the form like us, and became obedient, even to obedient to death, even to death on the cross. See, he was taking our place. This is the demonstration of what Jesus does to take the initiative to reconcile to live, to do. And because of that, we've been set free. We no longer have guilt. Sin has no power on us. We can swallow the debt. We can extend forgiveness because we have been forgiven. Jesus has said, not only just do what I do, but look to me. Be reminded what I have done, and then you have the power to do what I'm commanding you to do. We're coming to this table in a moment so that we can be reminded of exactly what Jesus has done. And so as we come to this table, let me pray, and then we're going to lead as a song of preparation the first verse of Rock of Ages just to prepare our hearts. Father, we come and thank you for your word, your instruction, but ultimately in Christ, for Christ, for what he has done for us, and that in him we may live and breathe and have our being. In him we are forgiven and because of him, we have the capacity to, be, to forgive. Strengthen us in our faith that we may be faithful in our relationships. We pray in Christ. Amen.